Hey, Genesis 9, that's where we are. Man, we're, the Lord is just ticking off and answering all the questions. All the questions. All the questions of life. Right here. And hopefully you're learning uh, that this is an important part of Scripture because Jesus believed in it and quoted it and talked about it. And so all the questions of life, the Lord is answering for us. And He does it through His Word here in Genesis. He tells us who He is and how big He is and how mighty, and how majestic, and how awesome. And my little problem that I'm thinking about, the Lord can take care of, uh, because He created the universe and everything. And uh, nothing's too hard for Him. When we see the Scriptures, nothing's too hard for Him. Do we really believe it? Well, this is answering the question, and we're starting to learn and grow in who He is. Uh, But then the second thing the book of Genesis does right off the bat here is it tells us who we are. And uh, today, you're really going to find out who you are. (laughs) We're sinners. And most of us in here, I think, are sinners saved by grace. And praise the Lord for that. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is right here in chapter 9. You're saying, really? I didn't see it. I read ahead. Well, it's here. And so many other things. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, before the Lord established the first institution that he established, What are the institutions of the Bible that the Lord establishes? Family through marriage. One man, one wife. Or one man, one woman, sorry. One husband, one wife. Come together to become one. He establishes that institution right here at the beginning of Genesis. Later, you know, he establishes government. We see that in the book of Genesis. And, of course, he's established his church. And you're part of it. You're sitting here. You're part of a little church, but... There's this bigger church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. That's an institution that the Lord created. But before he did that, I'm blown away that the Lord told us this, that the way that he wants his people to live, write this down. (laughs) Don't ever forget it. Is that he wants you and I and we to operate out of a position of rest. Oh, yes. Look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. You know, as a pastor, I'm like, okay, let's get through this so I can get to the marriage part. And maybe I can put together this cool little marriage seminar about what he's about ready to tell us in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And sometimes maybe I've skipped over this. Praise God that he stopped me this time. And it says, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, first one. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. Now, you you realize, right? God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. God doesn't need to rest like we do physically. He's not taxed. He's not anxious. He's not worn out. He stopped creating. And he rested. And it said, God blessed the seventh day and set it apart, which is sanctified. He sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work which God created and made. And you know the stories, right? As we progress through the Old Testament, he's going to do this several times. There's this seventh day. You're going to work, 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 and then there's this seventh day, and then you know this, right? Uh, in the, uh, the law, there's this thing where God said, I want you to plant for six years, but, you know, that seventh year, take a break, relax, rest, Problem is, by the way, 
the Israelites didn't adhere to that, and that cost them, and may, uh, that's one of the reasons God put them in Babylon, because they didn't operate out of a position of rest. But did you know this? There's a year of Jubilee, and that's better than a victory over the Rams, I'm telling you, the year of Jubilee. When you start to think about and understand what was happening in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year in a Jewish calendar back in the Old Testament times, I mean, come on. I sold my uh, uh, house to Dom. Dom sold it to Brianna. And at the end of the year of Jubilee, that uh, land, or real estate, not house, the real estate came back to me. I mean, would I be jumping up and down or what? I mean, Jubilee, right? All debts were canceled, all that sort of thing. I mean, this was powerful. But anyway, all of those things pointed to rest, and God wants you and me to operate out of a position of rest. We have to. We, he, he wants us to. And here's what we said as we discussed what rest is. Well, I think rest is a couple things, but one of them is rest isn't just sitting on the couch and eating bonbons on the day that you choose to rest. Rest is this. It's believing what God has said and deciding in your mind by the person and work of the Holy Spirit that you're going to trust it so that whatever the position or situation is, you take the promises of God, apply it to your situation, trust it, and then go like this. Okay, the Lord's going to do it. You're going to rely upon Him. And I think the second thing is to recognize and know that you and I in rest, we can rest in this one, buddy. We actually live his, or he lives his life through us. We depend upon the life of another to live our Christian life. Amen? It's not I who live, Paul says. It's Christ crucified who lives in me. See, I think that's rest. And if you choose to take a day of rest, which is a good principle for our earthly tense, well, that's wonderful. And whenever you do it, I think is okay, because Paul says, don't worry about the day so much, but live by the operation and power of rest. In fact, Jesus then amplifies it and said, are you weary? I mean, who, who would raise your hand when you're, yeah, are you heavy laden? I mean, you got burdens. And who here couldn't say that? I mean, Jesus is so kind and wonderful, isn't he? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to me. It's an invitation. God's an inviting God. He says, come to me. Just come. Come to me and depend upon me. Trust me. Know my words. Depend upon my life for your life. And I'll give you rest. Not I might. Not uh, if you've been a good little boy or a good little girl, you'll get it. No, I'll give you rest. Yoke up with me, he says. Put the yoke on. Yoke up with me. Let me walk for you. Let me trudge for you, etc. Man, that's a blessing. So we're learning that in the book of Genesis right off the bat. Isn't that beautiful? It's right there. And so many other things. And, of course, the temptation and fall of man that we chose to rebel. Why are there bad things happening in the world? And, uh, you know, I've said this several times because I stole it from another pastor. And But it's so good. It's not, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the question Christians ask. It's why does anything good happen to us bad people? 
Why does anything good happen to us? Because of the mercy and grace of God. Praise the Lord. But we fell and rebelled. And that had cataclysmic consequences for creation, his creation. And by chapter 4 here now, woo, we find out how devastating it is. It's not a cute Sunday school picture with a little furry thing over top your you know, your body or your torso and a little apple, which doesn't say apple, but whatever. It's murder. Sin, rebellion, leads to murder. And not just murder, murder of brother on brother. Devastating. And this is premeditated murder. He thought it through and was angry. And that's, Jesus said, if you've hated anybody. Ooh. Ooh. If you've hated somebody, You've committed murder. I've committed murder. Man, do we need the Lord. Do we need the rest of Jesus? And so we get there, and uh, uh, God uh, goes, takes us through in Genesis the lines uh, of the people, and uh, finally he gets us uh, to the family of Adam and through the line of Seth, and then we see what the wickedness and judgment of man is going to be. And remember, that's applicable right before the Noah flood. That's applicable. And why is it applicable? Because God told us in the New Testament, when it's like the days of Noah, recognize that I'm going to come soon then. That, that's the environment in which I'm going to come soon. Population explosion, that's one. Just go do the statistics. Big population explosion. Sexual perversion. I mean, do I need to say any more? You can't even watch a football game or a TV show and get past that. Sexual perversion everywhere. You, you ride up and down 51 and you have uh, radio uh, billboards with sexually perverted things. I mean, it's everywhere. It's just constantly in your face. And there was great wickedness at the time of Noah. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh is going to come before me in verse 13. For the earth is filled with violence. There's the other one, violence. Are you kidding me? I mean, just turn on the TV. You talk about violence. I mean, it's just evil. So he says, make yourself an ark. And oh, by the way, he says, make yourself an ark with pitch, like this oily substance on the inside and outside of the ark. And pitch is the word in Hebrew for atonement. Come on now. And God's pointing us to all these things. And we've been through the great flood and Noah's deliverance. And now we're getting to chapter 9, which is really eye-opening, man. Pride comes before a fall. And as you walk this Christian life, I think, you have a target on your back. Because if God can't steal, or excuse me, if the enemy can't steal your salvation, he wants to steal your testimony. And, you know, you're sailing along. I don't know about you, but as I'm right reading the Bible for the first time and stuff, I'm re thinking I'm opening a Bible about saints and angelic people. You get to chapter 4 and you go, wait a second, here's a murder. And you get to chapter 9 and you're like, the hero of the story has a tough day. And he falls. It's eye-opening. So look at this. God blessed Noah. Look what God had done. Just let me remind you. 
Don't ever forget about the end of chapter 8. Don't ever forget. Noah gets off the ark. The Lord spoke to him as he got on the ark. The Lord doesn't speak to him during the time on the ark. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'd have been a little nervous. Like, you know, day four, Lord, you know, I didn't hear from you for the first three days. Today would be great. And then the fifth day. And then all of a sudden you're into the 30th day. And now you're into the hundredth day and you're, right? You're like, whoa, what am I going to do? When's this going to stop? What is this rain stuff? How did this happen? 200 days, nothing. I know what we would do. We would be ticked. We might not say it to the Lord. We might not say, ah, what are you doing? But you'd think it in your heart. What are you doing, Lord? You put me on this ark. I got my family. All these people are dead. I see dead animals. What? 300 days go by, nothing. No sound, no speaking. 370 days go by. Oh, my. And then right after the 370 days, God speaks to Noah and says, go out of the ark. You know, many of us, as we're going out of the ark, holding wife's hand or the, you know, whatever, we'd probably look back and say, thanks a lot, Lord. You forgot me here, but not Noah. Here's what Noah did. Noah builds an altar. We, I don't know, I, I, picnic. We would have gone on a picnic. Hey, schedule the golf outing because we haven't been able to play golf for a year. This is amazing. I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to do all these things, not Noah. Noah builds an altar to the Lord, took uh, and took of every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings. That's a free will offering, folks. When do you have to give a free will offering? Never. Have to. You get to offer a free will offering. Get it? And it was all totally consumed there on the altar. And this is amazing. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. I mean, you're seeing here God's acceptance and pleasure, and God expressing his favor about what Noah did. Noah chose to worship first and praise God for all that he had done. Many of us have been complaining, what are you doing? Why didn't you speak to me? I know you got me through, but come on. Here, they they worship, and he makes sure his family worship. The Lord smells it, and the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake. I'm not going to exacerbate that curse. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. He's not going to, uh, 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 he, he's choosing, God is choosing not judgment here, but he's choosing to go a different route, not judgment. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. You and I, we should think of one word immediately, grace. Oh, and mercy, two words. Grace and mercy, right here, right here in chapter 9. Oh, my. Chapter 8, end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9. Right here, grace. People say, God, the Bible's different, Old Testament, New Testament. You're like, come on, man. No, he's not. Look at this. Grace. Here's why. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And the fear of you and the dread of you uh, shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They're given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. See, at the beginning of Adam's time, God said, hey, you could eat from the, the plants. Go ahead and eat to the plants. And apparently, before the flood, everybody was a vegetarian. They weren't eating meat. After they get off the ark, God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You can eat anything. And... Well, anyway, and the Lord gives dread to the animals. Before, apparently, they weren't scared of man. Now they're a little leery because we got things like bows and arrows, guns. Right? And the Lord goes here and says, no, no, no. Here's what I'm going to do. You can you can eat anything, uh, but uh, they're going to be a little nervous of you, so you're going to have to hunt them down and... Uh, and eat them and be responsible. And so it's good in this sense that God gave us dominion over those things and uh, granted us the ability to go, and I see some hunters in here, and go and uh, hunt and kill food, but then eat it. But we're supposed to be responsible too. And I think, uh, uh, and maybe some of you will correct me because I'm not a hunter, but I think the, the greatest hunters are the ones who are responsible. They, they take it seriously in the good way. This is something God's given them, but they don't abuse it. You understand? And God is into that, I think. And here he says, okay, you get this. But, amazing. This is amazing. This just sort of unlocks a little bit of the Bible. Right here. God gives you something right here. Amazing to me. But hold on here, hunters, people who are going to eat meat. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. You you shall not do that. You're not to eat the blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it. You're not to eat the blood. See, God is teaching them something right here that really had a big impact in my Christian walk when I came across this in Leviticus 17. Oh, don't laugh. That's the best book, man. (laughs) I love that book. God's trying to tell you something right here in Genesis 9. He's, He's saying that you and I and we ought to have a great, great's not even a strong enough word, whatever the... Best word for great is you ought to have a great respect for life, people. We ought to have a great respect for life. God's teaching us that. Because why? Because the the life is in the blood. Go to Leviticus 17. Read it. There's life in the blood. You know, when my dad died, I read this book, How We Die. I had no idea. I wanted to learn about heart attacks. Isn't that morbid? But I learned about heart attacks. I had no idea. You people say, well, how did you have no idea about this? But I'm telling you, I had no idea. I did not realize that the reason blood is pumping is because there's air molecules attached to your blood, and it gets it in your heart chambers. 
And then what's really coincidental, not coincidental, but it's the Lord, is the heart chamber that pumps the blood out, needs to get your blood back to your toes and into your fingers and the top of your head and everything so everything can get oxygen, just happens to be the biggest and the strongest chamber. So when it pumps, it goes the farthest. And your blood carries molecules of oxygen, and when it gets to its intended place, it goes poop, and it releases it so that you have oxygen everywhere. And then the blood goes back up into your heart, does its thing, da-da-da-da-da, boom, oxygen goes back on it, and away it goes again over and over and over and over. There's life in the blood. But there's also death. Every one of us, unless the Lord comes first, are going to die from the same thing, doctors who in here. Even I know this, lack of oxygen. Your heart's going to stop and you're going to have no more oxygen and you're going to die. Unless the Lord comes first. Happy thoughts, right? But here's the point of this. Respect for life. Hey, you can have meat, but you cannot have blood in it. Is it any coincidence in the secular bookshops, you go to the young adult section. It's almost too hard to believe. Just go and do it or don't go and do it. All the books there, the secular books, are fixated on things of blood. Vampires. It's no coincidence. And on and on and on. It's all these things. Movies are made about these things. And the world is sort of attacks and, uh, what's the word, uh, dishonors and parades around like blood, like it's some cool thing and try to get our young people and then us to have a disrespect for life. Isn't that interesting? Here, God says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You need to respect humanity and, and life and the giver of life. And, you know, I'm speaking to the choir in here, but we don't respect life as a culture here in America. I mean, we're killing babies at alarming rates and praise the Lord for new Supreme Court rules. But still, you see the vicious attacks that come back at it. I mean, in 1970... I was three years old in 1970. I can't remember this, but in 1970, did we in our wildest imaginations ever think that we would be legally able to kill babies in the womb? No. No way. And on and on and on it went, and still the fights are being out, or the fights are out there, because there's a respect for life that the people of God are to have. The people of God or the people who aren't of God wouldn't have respect for life. But we know that there is life in the blood. And everybody here, everybody demands, I think God demands from us, even non-Christian, Christian, that we respect and give dignity and respect to everyone because they were made in the image and likeness of God. They have a life. Their life matters to God. And God's wants them to come back maybe or come to him and trust him. And so I'm just cautioning you 
If you're in the family of God, praise the Lord. But what I'm cautioning you is people who are outside the family of God are going to do things that you're not going to agree with. But the Lord says, I want you to give them dignity and respect. Now, that doesn't mean you can't stand up for righteousness. We should stand up for righteousness. But they deserve dignity and respect. And even the people you encounter who, you know, you want to shake their lapels. Like, why do you keep making these mistakes? And, you know, they're coming back for help or benevolence or whatever. And you're like, oh, what are you doing? Well, it's because they don't have godly wisdom. You get it? And so we're to have respect in all these ways. And God sets it out right here in chapter 9. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You can have meat, but not bloody meat. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it. And you know that the law hasn't been made yet. But you know in the law of God that if a beast killed a human, the beast had to suffer the consequence. That's how unbelievably uh, important this is to God. Not only just does God establish what he's about ready to establish and we're about ready to read with person on person, but he established it even for the animals. Interesting. I will demand a reckoning. That's a hard word, man. In other words, somebody who does what we're about ready to discuss is going to have to reckon with God. And I want Jesus as my intermediary between me and God, don't you? The blood of Christ, the wrath of God. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, see, beast and man, and from the hand of every man's brothers, I will require the life of man. Now here you got to think to yourself about capital punishment. I know there's a big controversy about capital punishment, even within the church. But just read what God says about it. Whoever sheds man's blood. Hmm, this is pretty hard to understand. By man, his blood shall be shed. shed. That was sarcasm, by the way. Whoever shed man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now listen. You understand there's different degrees of killing a person. I mean, if I was to, you know, my friend standing back there and I had this gun and, uh, you know, I just waited here for 15 minutes and just, and just shot him. That'd be one thing. But let's say I was shooting at him and somebody else walked in between us and I killed that person. Did I have the malice of forethought to murder the person I murdered and the, Law now says, no, that's not the way it is. I mean, that's something else. That's like reckless homicide or something like this. But here, God is establishing in times of thought-out, premeditated, malice-of-forethought murder, here's what he says. He says that if somebody sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now listen, human systems have been messed up. DNA has shown that. 
Human systems have been messed up. DNA shows that. So in the pay, play, uh, uh, in the place where we're a hundred percent sure, or as close to weekend to be at hundred percent, you know, God is saying in those cases, look, this is what's required, and we've set those things up, and uh, our law distinguishes between all those different variations of murder. And we have some lawyers in here and some law people. And they know all of this, and you know all of this because you watch the shows. But I want to take you to something really interesting in the New Testament for your consideration today. Because I know there's some people, you know, on this side of the aisle and that side of the aisle, but I want to take you to Romans chapter 13. And I want to just let you see this. Let every soul... Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Romans. Let every soul, Paul's writing this, be subject to the governing authorities. Who is subject to the governing authorities? Everybody. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I'm just going to stand here for a minute and let you think about that for a minute. Therever, or therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now listen, we have a check and balance here. In the book of Acts, Paul said we can't do anything that goes against God. I mean, if the law was, I have to say, Caesar is God, no Christian is going to say that. So I'm going to have to violate the law. But, as a general principle... The authorities that exist are appointed by God. There are whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. Watch this. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Uh-oh. For rulers are not a, ter- a terror to good works, but to evil. Did you catch that? Rulers are supposed to rise up against evil and be a terror to it. <laughs> Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For look. He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword. Whoa. In vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Whoa. Hold on. You turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the, and apparently Paul was advocating for a system of government that gets to the truth, the real truth, nothing but the truth, with respect to murder. And in the cases that were obvious and plain and proven, a life shall be taken. And I want you to see something. It says, from the hand of every man's brother. It's sort of like the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is remembering the first human murder and how awful and devastating it is and how awful and devastating it is for anyone in their family that goes through this. This is God's word to a violent world, people. This is his word. To make sure that 
The violence in the world doesn't lead to more violence. That's what this is about. I'll let you marinate on that. Well, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him and says, For me, behold, I will establish a covenant. Now, folks, you got to know about covenants if you're going to read the Bible. Covenants. It's sort of like a contract, but not exactly, but it's a promise that one, uh, that parties make. And generally in our world, it's between two parties. I make a contract with you, you, uh, or you and I make a contract, Dom and I make a contract. Let's say I'd make a contract with Dom to remodel my basement. Let's just say I do that. Well, Dom is going to get some benefit. I'm going to pay him when he does the work, but I'm also going to get some benefit, right? It's a mutual agreement because I'm going to get him to finish my basement because I got to let you in a little secret. I can't fix anything. So Dom's going to do that. Uh, he's going to shell out some things to, to get that done. He's going to use, you know, gasoline to get to the place. He's going to use some materials and then I'm going to pay him back. And that's a mutual sort of covenant contract. In God's world, though, it's very interesting. Sometimes his covenants with man or the ones that he makes are sort of that bilateral agreement, but a lot of them are unilateral. It'd be like Dom coming to me and say, Dom, do it anyway, okay, because I need help. But it'd be like Dom coming to me and saying, I'm just going to fix your basement because I'm nice. Dom, do it, do it. But anyway... I'm just going to fix your basement for you. And I'm going to say, wow, what do I have to do? And he says, nothing, I'm going to do it. That's a unilateral agreement. I want you to think about some things. Uh, God made a covenant in Eden. He uh, declared to Adam and Eve that you were to enjoy everything except for one tree. Just going to give you millions of trees, fruit, all that sort of thing. I'm going to make an agreement. If you stay away from just the one tree, you can have anything else. Everything's going to be great. But if you don't, listen, 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 you're going to die. That was God's covenant in Eden. Then he made a covenant with Adam. And after Adam fell, do you remember this? Noah had to work by the sweat of his brow and the woman's desire for was for her husband, pain in childbirth. And then in the middle of this covenant, folks, ah, this is a key sort of to this chapter. <laughs> he said, you know, the seed of the woman, this, this serpent thing is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that was the prophecy for all time, telling us that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to come at some point, right? And that's in Genesis 3. And now we're encountering the covenant with Noah. Listen, we're going to encounter a covenant with Abraham. We're going to encounter a covenant with Moses. We're going to encounter a covenant that the theologians call the Palestinian covenant. It doesn't mean with people. It means about land. That's in Deuteronomy 30. There's a Davidic covenant when you get to 1 Samuel 7 is one of the most important things you can learn in the Old Testament. And if you come to Bible college, we'll teach it to you. No, I'm just kidding. No, we will teach it to you, but I'm, I'm, 
It's a shameless plug for the Bible college. And in Jeremiah 31, oh, don't you love this covenant? I hope you do. I'm not going to write the law on old, dead, stony tablets anymore. I'm going to write it on your heart. The new covenant. It's prophesied about in Jeremiah 31, and Jesus instituted it with the bread and the wine. Well, anyway, he makes this covenant right here. He makes this covenant, a covenant with Noah. And it's important that you know about these things. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, beasts of the earth, of all the go out of the ark, every burst, uh, a beast uh, of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Now, let me ask you something. Uh, if you get the wrong answer, nobody will make fun. Is this a unilateral covenant or a bilateral covenant? Yeah, it's unilateral. God's just saying, I'm not going to do it anymore. Wow. It's like, you know, why are you going to fix my basement? Well, no reason. I'm just going to do it. Here, God made a choice. God is choosing grace and mercy. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant. And with every living creature... I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall be a flood destroy the earth. This is speaking about grace and mercy. God chose grace. We serve a God who's also a judge. We saw it in the flood. Devastating, cataclysmic. But after the flood, he said, I'm not going to do it again. Why? I'm just not. Get it? Unilateral. And it was universal. That means it was for everyone. People of God, not the people of God. That's called common grace. Raise your hand if you heard me. Common grace. That's common grace. God pours out the rain on the just and the unjust. You get it? That's common grace. And God's showing it here. It's unilateral and it's universal. And look what he says. I mean, it's amazing. You're, you're going to... Eat meat, you gotta respect the blood, and I'm gonna make this covenant with you and all the living creatures. And God could have just kept going, right, I guess, but He chose to forbear. I want you to see that. And we're sort of still living there. I mean, the Lord Jesus came, He died and rose again. And there's coming a a time, and I think it's coming very soon. If you watch the story of what's happening in Israel and you begin to understand the prophetic meaning of what's happening there, you understand. And this isn't hype and trying to get you scared. This is just true. The second coming of Jesus, the Bible tells us, is a purifying doctrine. Jesus is coming again. And he's going to set all things right and judge He's going to judge us as Christians, not for salvation. We're going to be judged based on what we did with what we were given. All our idle words. We're going to give an account for even the things we said. Why? Because he's telling us what we're going to take in eternity with me. What, What we're going to take into eternity with him. I can't say it. The Bema Seat judgment. The crowns. But for those who are outside of Christ, he's coming to judge. And that gets you up out of bed every day, I think. 
to share the love of Christ with people who don't know it, to bear with people who talk bad about you, your enemies. Jesus is coming again to judge, and I want you to see something. There's millions and millions of people just walking around, going to their jobs like robots, and they have no idea what's coming. And the Lord said, I want you to tell them. You can, I'm going to work through you. Amazing. And lots of you told some people yesterday about the love of Christ. Well, anyway, this is common grace, and God right now is forbearing. That's what I'm saying. He's long-suffering, but he's coming again because he's going to come as a judge. We live in the era of grace. We live in the last days. We live in the last days since Jesus died and rose again. The book of Acts tells us that. But here, in the early times, God made a covenant. And I just want you to see God's heart. And God said, this is the sign of this covenant between me and Noah and Noah and his family. This is the sign. I'm going to give you a sign. Is it any wonder that this sign is mocked and thrown and and trashed and distorted and perverted? And here's the sign I make between you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Listen, it's for all the generations, this sign. It isn't just for the post-flood few hundred-year people. It's the sign now. I mean, how amazing is God? He just keeps putting it up there like the bat signal. Boom! 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 And what does the sign mean? It means... I set my rainbow, by the way, if you have a King James version, it doesn't say rainbow, it says bow. It says bow. Some people believe, listen, look at this, look at this. You like bow and arrows? Anybody in here like bow and arrows? Look, look, some people believe it's the picture of the bow going that way. So that God, look, took it himself. The bow, the punishment. God set his bow that way. So that it was being shot at him. Come on. But you know what we see. We see all the colors of the rainbow. It's a miracle. You can tell me scientifically how it happens. You can explain it to me a hundred times and I never know. I won't be able to repeat it. I can't understand it. I don't know. And praise the Lord. It's just amazing. It just appears and everybody runs to them and wants to see them. And now everybody distorts them and perverts them. But he says, I set my rainbow there and it's going to be a sign between me and the earth and it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow or the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. By the way, there's a devotional about this. The promises are in the clouds. I mean, I look out here and there's people going through it, man. And nobody wants to say, you know, just tap you on the head and say, ah, just get over it. Nobody's saying that. But you're going to come to know Jesus in a way that lots of us who aren't going through the same things that you are, are going to know him. You're going to know him in a deep way because the bows are in the clouds, not in the sunny skies. You hold on to the promises in the bow, in the clouds. You cling to them. You pray. You're close to the Lord because you draw near to Him and He he draws near to you. The bow 
is in the clouds. Never forget that. But it's this promise, you see. When you know about rainbows, if it's not talking about a bow, if it's talking about a rainbow, and of course it is maybe a little of both, Ezekiel speaks of his brightness being contained in the rainbow. I want you to think about that the next time. It's like the God in his mercy. See, you couldn't see his brightness. If you saw his brightness, you'd die. You'd be annihilated. So the Lord says, I'm going to make you something really pretty and beautiful, and you're going to love it, and it's, I'm going to shrink it down enough so you can see it. It's going to remind you of my brightness and my glory and my weight. So there, I'll bring a cloud of the earth. I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Every living creature of all flesh, the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud. I want you to see that. And I will look on it to remember. Now, how long is the covenant made for? It's an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth of all flesh. And God said to Noah, this is the sign which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. See, now in this era of where we live, we see that God is refraining from ever doing it by a flood. They can talk about Global warming, you can believe what you want about global warming, whatever. I'm not telling you one way or the other. All I'm telling you is you're not going to be destroyed by a worldwide flood anymore. (laughs) Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three that were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. There you go. We're all brothers and sisters. Everybody deserves dignity and respect. You look different than me. Who cares? We came from the same place. You deserve dignity and respect. You live on that side of the tracks. I live on this side of the tracks. Who cares? Who am I? I'm no, no better than anyone. You're not. We're brothers. We're sisters in that way. And Noah began to be a farmer. And the King James, it's husbandman. And he planted a vineyard. Now listen, every time I talk on this, I get in trouble. Somebody accused me one time of saying I made the whole congregation sign a covenant to not drink. I'm, I never said that. <laughs> but you got to be careful, man. And if you, I mean, I don't think I'm looking around the room and I'm not sure there's anybody that's drank more than me in my life. <laughs> it's been a while, but I don't think there's been any, or at least I'm, I've, I tried to catch you. But here you have this man who had imputed righteousness. Folks, he walked with God, just like Enoch walked with God. And you're reading the book and you're going, wow, what a saint and a wonderful guy. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he must be the perfect guy and he's never going to do anything wrong or bad. And here he goes and he becomes a husband and he plants a vineyard. And by the way, how long does a vineyard take to grow? Yes, so he knew what he was doing. And then he drank of the wine and he was drunk and he became uncovered in his tent. Now look, I I know what you're going to say. I've heard, I've done the debate. I've said it from here. You're going to say the Bible doesn't say you can't drink. And I would say I agree. I mean, in fact, in some places it says that uh, drink is merry and, you know, good for the heart or whatever. And uh, 
Uh, all those things. It gladdens the heart of man in 104.15. And Paul said, uh, so, so, you know, on one hand, in several places, it says that wine, you know, pops and gives life. And yes, and Jesus performed a miracle and he was around it. And we can debate whether it had, you know, alcohol in it or not alcohol in it. But here it had alcohol in it. And he plants a vineyard. But listen, this is Noah. I think we forget this story. And he drank and became drunk. I mean drunk. And the Bible tells you clearly, right? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And some of you are already looking down at your notes like, don't look at me because I disagree with you and all that sort of thing. And okay, I get it. You do disagree. But the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine. Can you drink a glass or two of wine or something like that? Yeah, probably. But I'm going to tell you from my experience, and I was a heavy drinker. It didn't take too much to get a buzz. That's all I'm saying. So you just got to be honest with yourself. Just be careful. Because the Bible is telling us in Ephesians 5, don't let anything influence you other than the Holy Spirit. That's what it's saying. And it says what? Hey, you're jumping ahead so far. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> no problem. Uh, and so, yes, and so you get all these things. But remember, we're going through the Proverbs. Wine is a mocker. Beer a brawler. Beer is bitter to its drinkers, 24-9 of Isaiah. No drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, this is what it's saying, not me. Don't get drunk on wine, Ephesians 5. And the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Drunkenness, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And we could go on and on and on. I just want you to know this. The Bible warns you heavily about getting drunk. About getting drunk. It warns you heavily. And here you got this old, older gentleman who's a seasoned saint who you know is, wants to finish well. And he plants a vineyard. He drinks the wine, and we could do a whole thing. Did his, did his, I mean, he didn't get his goals mixed up here, but did he get his goals mixed up? Man, God made me such a great vintner and a, a, a husbandman and a farmer, and I can do this. And did he get his goals mixed up? Did he get his priorities mixed up? It doesn't say, but he plants a vineyard, he's drunk, no doubt about that, and he becomes uncovered in his tent. Now, see, Everybody debates, what's this all about? He became uncovered. He was naked. In the Old Testament, that was a bad thing for the patriarchs to do. In fact, as you get to the law, there's a whole sections devoted to not uncovering yourself, but especially don't uncover somebody else. If you did, you were in deep trouble. It's right there in the law. It was the heart of God. And apparently, look at this. One of his sons, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And that wasn't so bad. But here's what happened. He went in a joking, mocking way and dishonored his father. And he told about it. And the language here in the Hebrew is that he made jokes about it. And he sort of snickered and thought it was funny. And he really disrespected his dad. Now think about how his dad felt. You want to take this into your family? Falling down drunk? And you get exposed? What happens when you drink alcohol to, to excess? You get exposed. You uncover yourself. 
You know, sometimes in therapy for drunk or, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous, they film people who are drunk and they show it to people because people think they're being funny and jokey and real, you know, all this. And they look at it and they're horrified. You mean that's how I act? And that's what happens with drinking. I know. I've been there. And so here he is. He's drunk, and the son sees him, and he tells, and he told his brother, and Shem and Japheth, take a garment. That's what they were supposed to do. You understand what they were doing? They were coming into the tent, and they were not looking at dad because they didn't want to embarrass him or do anything untoward towards him. But not only that, but the sheets would hold up when the flap of the tent went up so nobody could see in the tent. They were being very respectful. That's who these guys were. They laid it on their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, and they didn't see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine. Listen to this. This is an important verse. And he knew what his younger son had done to him. How? Because he spread it around. He totally disrespected his dad. And that was a no-no. And he told it around, and he told people about it. And this was a really rough thing, because look at this. These are the only words that Noah speaks in the Bible. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, the Shem are the Israelites, and may Canaan be his servant, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents, God bless you, of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And I just want to tell you a couple things, and I'll move on. Canaanites. You understand that the son of Noah who saw Noah naked is not the one who got cursed. Did you catch that? It was the son of Ham, Canaan, who is cursed. You see that. You say, well, why is that? Well, you got to take the whole Bible. We're going to get there here in a little bit. I want you to know something. I don't think the Bible teaches generational curses. You can debate me on that. Some of you believe it. I don't think the Bible teaches generational curses, and here's why. Ezekiel 18, just read it today. Right before, 3.30 this afternoon, you'll be done by 4.30. Wink, wink. Read Ezekiel 18. The Bible says, the the soul that sins, I can't say it, shall surely die. And it goes on to explain that the sins of the father don't count against The sons, it's because the sons have personal responsibility for sin. But having said that, dads, moms, grandmas, friends, you have great influence on the people that you raise. You understand that? (laughs) Anybody here ever talk to my son, Beck? Kate has. Or my son, Kai, or my son, Kate. You know what people come up to and say? Oh, my goodness, they're just like you. And then I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, is that good or bad? (laughs) 
You see what I'm saying? There's impact that you have on the people. And apparently Canaan was walking like his father walked. You get it? And God knew it. And he prophesied and said, what's happening in Canaan right now, Noah, because Noah's saying, or God's saying to Noah, sorry, God's saying what you let come into your family. Dads. What you let come in your family, look, it's happening to your son. And Canaan was banished to servanthood. And you could read about who the Canaanites were. They were the people that inhabited that area of Israel. And you could read about it. Go on Got Questions and look up who were the Canaanites. We don't have time right now. But they're as servants. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of Shem. Etc. Shem were the Israelites. Uh, Japheth were the Indo-Europeans going up north. Scythian people. All right. But here's the point. Another point. Why in the world would this be in the Bible? This shocks me when I'm reading it. I want saints. Perfect people. Don't you? Well... You know, no, right, you don't. But here, you're reading this, and it's like, boom, God put this in there so you'd be wise, so I'd be wise. 1A, drinking. Be careful, please. Don't email me now and say you're totally against drinking. I am for me. Because if I drink that much, watch out. And I know it. So I stay away from it. <laughs> right. So you got to watch. And I understand is you're going to come back with me in moderation and all that stuff. I'm saying, remember Noah, who walked all those years, got his priorities and then did it. Be careful. Pride comes before a fall. Being lax or comfortable comes before a fall. And Noah here, this imputed righteousness guy who walked with God becomes drunk and this Nakedness comes, and many people believe there's some sort of sexual perversion, scholars uh, greater than me, between the dad and the son. This is weird stuff that's happening here. No, maybe not. But something bad has happened, and he starts speaking of it. And I want you to see something else that maybe... You and I need a lot of. And that's this. You know, there's really only two type of people in the world. Two. Some of them are sitting in here, both sides. Two of them. Some people who are covered and some people who are uncovered. And in that respect, man, I want to be covered by the blood of Jesus, don't you? I mean, I want to be covered by the blood of Jesus because I know without the Lord in my life I could be a Noah couldn't you yeah you could too and so we want to be covered by the blood of Jesus and we want to tell people who are uncovered to get covered but I also want you to see something within the Christian community I got to read you this quote by Mark Twain, I know, I'm going a little long, but listen, you got to hear this quote. Every man or woman is like the moon. This is what Mark Twain said, not a Christian, but boy, is this smart. There is a dark side that no one else sees, 
but that he knows is there. Or she. Yet Hebrews 4 tells us that everything's open. God knows everything, open and naked before him. God sees it all. And yet, oh, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And on and on we go. We know that he buries our sin in the sea. He takes our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. You remember the sin, remembers it no more. But listen, the Bible tells us, and I think this is what we need to know, that we are to be tender-hearted towards one another, kind to one another, forgiving one another. You understand? That we're to have hearts that are tender and that we know this, the Bible tells us in a couple places. Listen, if you don't remember anything from the sermon, you probably won't remember this. Remember this. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what love does. Love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude, not just the little ones, a multitude of sins. Love covers it. It's not like you cover up things. It's like you come and assist people who are in that place that Noah is of shame and guilt, and you back in there with the cover because you love him or her, and you put it over there, and you cover, and you don't tell tales. Are you understanding that this all happened the ramifications of it all happened because the kid went out of the tent and told everybody and mocked. And you saying, well, what are you doing? It's late and I want you to stop. And I get it. I will stop. Except for here's the thing. Be very careful who you point fingers at. Be really careful. Now, are we supposed to call out sin when we see it? Yes, but remember, when somebody's repentant, that's where it stops. You don't have to pile on after repentance. And you all were looking at me like, oh, I know all this, really? But do we do it in practice? Do we do it in practice? Because a love covers a multitude of things or sins. I'll tell you after Proverbs. 10 and 17. <laughs> and here, listen, and we'll, we'll finish on this. Everybody turn to 1 Peter. This will be it. 1 Peter chapter 4. Be careful. Here's the, hey, listen, listen, listen. Here's the litmus test. If you are with a friend, here it is, and you're talking about somebody who's not there, here's when you could say it. If you'd say it if they were standing there. If they're not standing there and you wouldn't say it while they were standing there, don't say it out of their presence. Are you with me? And the reason is, is because, listen, maybe the person you're telling the tale to doesn't know person X very much. But to that person who you're telling the tale to, 
Person X becomes what you say they are. You're defaming people because there's always two sides to a story. You understand? And what's better is not to talk about people in that way, but to talk about people in encouragement like a Barnabas. Do we ignore sin? Do we let people just walk and do? No, that's not. But there's systems for that that the Lord put together. But in general sense, a love covers a multitude of sins. And we'll close on this and we'll pray. In 1 Peter 4, look at this. Oh, I'm in 2 Peter. 1 Peter 4, look at this, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Folks, I'm not trying to scare you, but I got to tell you that the end of all things is at hand. We're here. And you shouldn't be scared because you love the Lord and you want Him to come. Therefore, be serious. Oh boy. That got me. But be serious and be watchful in your prayers. And above all things, here it is, know your eschatology way better than anybody on TV. No, he gives you something really practical. Love one another fervently. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be careful of what you say about people. Be careful with things that the Lord has warned you about. Because the enemy is a roaring lion just looking to get a little foothold in your life and snag you up and ruin your testimony. And poor Noah got swept right up in it. I don't know if it's poor Noah, but you get what I'm saying. Well, Lord, we come together and we uh, thank you for your word and pray, Lord, that you would knit these things to our hearts and bless them. And Lord, show us that when you give a warning, that we should heed that warning. And Lord, you, you show us to be wise, not to be too comfortable or lax. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us, oh, don't we pray this in these last days, with a love from you, a love from you, that we could love people through that are unlovable. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.